This is part two of our series of messages called The Cross-Shaped Life. Kale got us started with a really spectacular sermon last week about the cross-shaped marriage. Today, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about cross-shaped masculinity. But the series overall is intended to be a practical guide to Christian character formation. Because the, the idea here is that we're not just here, if you're a Christian, you're not just here waiting to die and go to heaven. You're not just biding your time, poor kid. You are not just, you know, just trying to get through every day. You're not just trying to survive and wait to heaven. You're doing something else here. You're supposed to be called out to be doing something more with, with this time you have on earth, and that something more for the Christian life is developing Christian character. So everybody's developing some kind of character. Character in itself is not explicitly Christian, but Christian character is unique to the Christian, to, to the character landscape in the world, right? So Christian character means something more. <clears throat> that word Christian just means little Christ. Okay, so Christians are becoming, by the grace of God, little versions of Christ. So our character is supposed to reflect the character of Jesus. So we're going to be talking about how that happens and what that looks like um, throughout this seven or eight week series. This is part two. And uh, we're talking about masculinity, which always gets me in hot water. It's weird. This is like this subject is talking about this subject has gotten me closer to the edge of being terminated than any other. Y'all know I don't, I don't shy away from the tough subjects, but this one really bothers people. Invariably, I get emails from people who are angry about some of the things that I tend to say about this subject. But I think it's an important subject because I think, I think it's, it should be plainly obvious to us that we are in something of a masculinity crisis. Like it's, I don't know how severe it is. I just sense it. I feel it. I've experienced it myself. Our culture is and has been for several years now in this uh, sort of no man's land, so, so to speak, of uh, what it means to be masculine in a positive way. So I want to unpack some of that stuff today. Uh, but first, I'd like to just start with a passage um, of Scripture from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, from the time that God created the first man and the first woman, all right? So this is before, before it all fell apart. Genesis 3 is when the fall happened, and even Adam in the garden and the snake and all that. <laughs> That's the next chapter. Here, things are still great. Things are perfect in this part of the story, all right? So let's look at what happened um, as we prepare to talk about cross-shaped masculinity. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. All right, so just remember, I just told you, this is before the fall. This is when things are perfect. This is as good as the man is ever going to get, and he's still not good enough on his own. God's like, this man, he's, he misses something. He's missing something. He, he, this man, he's not, the boy's not going to make it on his own. He's like, like already, even before the fall, God's like, yeah, this is not going to turn out very well. So God, God's, God says, then he should not be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. This is where a lot of... Um, uh, feminist theologians will get upset and, and 
try and reframe this, this story because suitable helper seems like a diminutive title, a dismissive title to give the first woman a suitable helper. Is that all I am to you? You know, that kind of thing. And it's unfortunate because I would feel the same way if I were a woman and, uh, and this is how I was described. But it's a little bit of a translation problem. Um, I, I don't know that there's a better word than suitable helper as a phrase to describe what this word means, but it's a very common word throughout the Bible. It just means uh, help. Like it can be a common noun or a proper noun. The word is ezer, E-Z-E-R in Hebrew. And it is used many times in scripture to refer to God. God is my help. God is my ezer. God is my suitable helper. That's what it should say if we were consistently translating the thing throughout the Old Testament. It just, I think it felt weird for God here to say, I will create for him a help. And so suitable helper is the translation that they went with. Uh, but the word is ezer, and it's not meant to be diminutive or dismissive toward Eve. It just means a, a, a help like God is our help, okay? So equal in stature and uh, in dignity. So God uh, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he took out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, whoa. No, I'm just kidding. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Taken out of man, she is part of me. We are one and the same, same flesh. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. They felt no shame because sin hadn't entered the, the, the world yet. So they were still just free loving in the Garden of Eden. So no shame. Now, for several years, I have perceived, many others have perceived a problem when it comes to men and masculinity in our culture. Now it should I think, be plainly obvious to all of us that masculinity itself, traditional or you could say typical masculinity and masculine traits are under attack or under fire in our culture. That I'm not even saying that with emotion. That's just like factual information, like traits that are typically traditionally masculine or male, not exclusively masculine or male. Don't worry if you're a woman and these traits describe you or if you're a man and they don't describe you. I'm just talking generally here, you know, and so traditional, typical traits of masculinity like uh, aggressiveness, assertiveness, uh, dominance, physicality, um, things like stoicism, things like the ability of compartmentalizing emotions during times of great duress, those kinds of skills that, by the way, have served humanity very well for 99.99% of our time on earth. And not just men, but women too have been served very well by those traits. Now they've come under fire and they have, um, in many circles in our culture, um, been deemed and branded as, as uh, harmful, destructive, and even toxic. And just do some reading. If, you, if you're unfamiliar, you don't buy what I'm telling you, just just look at what how the media describes men or traditional masculinity and, and uh, you know, many prominent voices in media, how uh, upper-level academia describes men and masculinity. Just look at even, even how um, the medical community at times describes men and, and masculinity. Um, the American Psychiatric Association or American Psychological Association recently updated their handbook in dealing with uh, 
boys and young men to describe traditional masculine traits, like the ones I just mentioned earlier, um, as symptoms of a mental illness in need of sedation, medication, a cure, and that kind of thing. And so this trend has been happening for quite some time. And, you know, I've got two trains of thought here. On the one hand, it's as obvious to me this is happening, and it's not good. On the other hand, I want us as men, myself included, to own up to the ways that our behaviors have contributed to those negative stereotypes. So I've got two trains of thought. I want to try and address both of them, but I'll start with the first part, with what I'm seeing in culture, and then we'll get to the other part in a moment. So what's happening is really tragic, and it's borne out in the statistics. It really should come as no surprise to us that as traditionally, typically masculine traits have been deemed destructive um, and toxic by the wider culture, boys, and as they grow to young men, they have begun to underperform, vastly underperform in school compared to their female counterparts. And to me, this is obvious. I see it. I see it in my own story, but I think to a lot of people, it just it, it begs some explanation. In the 1960s, y'all, 58% of, of American college graduates were men, and 42% of American college graduates were women. And this kind of disparity rightfully sparked a feminist revolution in America, because clearly that disparity is wide enough to suggest that women and young, young girls and young women were not being afforded the same rights or the same opportunities as boys and young men were in this country. Clearly, that needed to be leveled out. I think that was probably a really good thing. But in 2021, y'all, almost 60% of American college graduates will be women, while just over 40% of, of college graduates in America will be men. I've yet to see any sign of a revolution taking shape to stand up for the rights of oppressed boys and young men in this country. I'm not necessarily even calling for one. I just, I think the double standard is interesting. That's all. And especially when you do a little bit more digging and you find that not only is there not a revolution to defend these boys who are underperforming compared to girls and underrepresented on college campuses compared to girls and, and young women, not only is there not a revolution, there's actually a tinge of excitement and pride among many of these uh, voices in academia and in the media, there's almost a sense that, well, maybe this is just the free market playing out. Maybe, maybe girls are just a little smarter than boys. Maybe girls work a little harder in school than boys, get their assignments in on time. Maybe girls are more responsible than boys. Maybe they're just generally better students than boys. And so boys, either get your act together or just be quiet. And if that's your stance, okay, I just want you to know, and you should know this already, that's exactly the kind of thing misogynists used to say about y'all. Ladies, back in the 60s, <laughs> that men are just smarter than women. You know, get over it. It's the way that it is. I'm sure we can do better than that. I'm sure we can, we can dig deeper than that to the source of what's really going on with boys and young men in our culture. For example, maybe we could look at the ways that um, boys are disciplined differently than girls in elementary school. Maybe we could look at statistics that show how boys are three times more likely than girls to be suspended or expelled from elementary school. Three times more likely to be diagnosed with 
ADHD and treated and medicated for ADD or ADHD in elementary school. The average age that a kid is diagnosed with ADD or ADHD is seven years of age, and boys are three times more likely to receive that diagnosis than girls. Boys are five times more likely to be chastised or, or penalized in elementary school classrooms by their teachers for an inability to sit still. And so these kinds of things take root, I think, in our boys. And as they grow into young men, we find a phenomenon happening where boys are living down to their low expectations. All right, so this hits close to home for me. It would probably come as no surprise to most of you that by the time I was in middle school, I was branded as the class clown. Like, this is who I was as a middle schooler. And, I mean, I did some horrible things. It was all me. Like, it's my fault. I'm not even blaming anyone else. But I do remember several different times trying to start a new year or a new semester by turning over a new leaf and trying to be a different kid this year. Once and for all, I'm going to turn the page. And then I would be reminded by certain teachers in no uncertain terms that although we had never met, they knew me. They knew who I was. They had heard in the teacher's lounge. My reputation preceded me. And so I was, I was given this message first day of school that their expectations of me were a little bit lower than maybe the average student. And like any kid, I lived down to the expectations I was given. And kids always live down or up to the expectations that they're given. It also hits close to home to me because of something that happened with my son. So um, when he was in the first grade, I thought it was the second, but he informed me this morning it was the first grade that this happened. Um, his mother and I were called into a special meeting on a school day. Uh, with his teacher. That's always bad news, right? So I just kind of prepared myself (laughs) for whatever was coming. And Giovanna and I went to school during their classes recess time. And we went in and sat down in those little chairs. I folded this gangly body down awkwardly into that chair and just (laughs) sat there just just telling her, just give give it to me. Give it, just what's going on with my boy? What do you do? What's wrong with him? Whatever. (laughs) And, uh, And, you know, I was ready to, to absorb whatever the situation was. But then she proceeded to tell the teacher, the first grade teacher proceeded to tell us that um, every day, she said, every day it's the same story with your son. Every day in circle time, the kids circle up and he's one of the only ones who refuses to sit still. And every day he touches the bottom of his shoes to the 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 lowest shelf on my bookshelf. Even when I tell him not to, he stops doing it, but within five minutes, he's doing it again, shifting, squirming, putting his feet on my bookshelf. And so I'm just sitting there waiting for the real problem. You know, it's like, like, okay, this is like the prelude. (laughs) This is the beginning. But then she stopped. And, And Giovanna knew that she better speak before I did. And so, <laughs> so she started to talk and she said something like, well, is it affecting his work, his grades? How's he doing with, you know, math and, and reading comprehension? We work on that stuff at home all the time, she said. And the teacher said, no, no, it's just every day in circle time. And she said the same thing again about the squirming and the, I don't remember, I was zoned out, ADD. Anyway, I was, I was out of it. I was just, in, in truth be told, I was boiling inside because I was having all kinds of flashbacks to my childhood. And I was, I was kind of boiling up inside. I was smiling still, but just weirdly like a preacher at a wedding rehearsal when everybody's late, you know, just. 
that kind of thing. And uh, I'm really good at that, by the way. It's a part of my profession. So the, um, I was just trying not to ruin my reputation as a pastor in the community, and I was sitting there, and, 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 and she said, no, that, that, that's the only issue, and, and, uh, but, but I just wanted to know if y'all have noticed this pattern of behavior in the home. And, uh, you know, of course we had, like, <laughs> of course he's in a first grade boy. Uh, but, but she went on to say, you know, uh, I've seen lots of little boys come through my classroom with signs and symptoms of ADHD. And my two boys have ADHD. And, and I've recommended dozens of boys go see this doctor of ours. And, and the medication, the, the, you know, get them treated, that was their salvation. And, and, uh, and I just wanted to give you the, the number to our, our psychiatrist. Okay, let me pause for a second and explain something, okay? So what I'm about to tell you has nothing to do with any aversion to psychiatric treatment, even for kids, okay? That's not where my I'm not telling you that because I think it's always bad to have a kid treated by psychiatrists or even medicated in some, some instances. The, the problem here was that because I had already been through that, right? So if you have been around the story, I've been very open about my own treatment for ADD and the depression related to ADD that led to all kinds of addictions and stuff like that. Like in my past, like I've been treated for this, no aversion whatsoever when it's necessary. But because I had been through all that, I knew what this disease looked like, this disorder looked like. I knew I didn't see it in my boy. It wasn't there. If it was, I would have been the first to say, let's get this, let's get this kid some help so he doesn't become me. Like, let's get him now, you know? <laughs> and so I would have been the first, no problem, let's do it. But it was clear to us, my, my wife and I, Giovanna and I then, that, that that wasn't this boy's struggle. And it's become even clearer to us that he has, he has, he's not a perfect kid. He's close. He's not a perfect kid, but that's not his struggle. Like focus and stuff is not his struggle. And so the, the friction there wasn't that she was saying my kid needed treatment. The friction there was this thought that were we not aware of who our son is and def- defensive of him in a good way? Like, were we not there to suggest maybe you're wrong about this boy? Like, what, what happens when a, a seven-year-old is low-key diagnosed in a classroom with something he doesn't have and then medicated for something he doesn't need? Like, what happens then, you know, um, and, and as he grows up? What happens to him when there's not someone standing up for him in the face of these low-key uninformed, blanket diagnoses. Because, I don't know, maybe you think squirming in circle time is cause for a a Ritalin prescription. I don't, I don't think that's the answer. But it was one more sign that our boys and and young men are are being labeled in ways that that aren't uh, entirely helpful. And, And these labels, they do something to the to the, the character, the, the personality, the confidence of a boy as he becomes a young man. These, these misplaced diagnoses become something even more, you could say, toxic later in adulthood. Now, if you know me at all, we've been around the story at all, you know I have a major issue, probably, probably too great of an issue with the phrase toxic masculinity. I talk about it way too much. I understand that, but I, it's only because I think I've never explained it right. I think I've never explained why I have a problem with the phrase toxic masculinity because every time I 
implore you to stop saying toxic masculinity, I still get multiple emails from people who are mad at me. Invariably, people that are like, but some men, lots of men, maybe most men do really toxic things. You know, some men really are too aggressive. Some men are violent. Some men are abusive. And, And so Eric, we're not talking about all of masculinity. We're just talking about the brand of masculinity that's toxic. All right. I get it. You don't have to write that email to me. I get what you're saying. I just think you're wrong. Okay? So let me explain. In the, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, and part of the 20th century, there was in the medical community, um, and it was very clear that this was a well-known idea because it was also in all kinds of media and, and newspapers and things like that in culture. There was this idea in Western civilization that a woman who demonstrated any range of weird symptoms from irritability to uh, uh, hypersexuality or sexual predation to uh, paranoid schizophrenia could be branded or diagnosed with something called hysteria. All right, so the hysterical woman was sort of a trope in culture. Hysterical femininity was then what toxic masculinity is today. And thank God, by the, by the early 20th century, medical professionals and other leading voices in the culture realized what a damaging, uh, derogatory thing it was to just uh, offer such a catch-all diagnosis for women who either didn't know how to behave or just couldn't behave or were mentally ill or whatever, and called that thing hysterical femininity because it had nothing to do with femininity. It had to do with other factors going on. Probably the fact that women were largely objectified and oppressed in culture. That probably didn't help. But it wasn't femininity that was the problem. You see what I'm saying? And in the same way, it's not masculinity that's the problem today. Are there issues with some men? Of course. Are all men sinners just like everybody else? Of course. Are there things we should be addressing with our boys and our men exclusively? Yes. Does that have anything to do with what masculinity is? No. And when we give our boys that that message, when when the only qualifier they ever hear to masculinity, the only adjective they ever hear for masculinity is toxic, we're lowering the bar of expectations yet again. One research that I read this this week as I tried to understand the problem more, and uh, she works for a a great uh, university. Um, The name escapes me. Um, But anyway, she, uh, she, she wrote this about about boys, she said, too often in the classroom, boys are defined as uh, deficient girls. Deficient girls. It's like we, we have so maligned the idea of boys or masculinity that, that the bar for boys is just to be the best girls they can be almost in a classroom setting. And we're setting them up for, for failure. And I think that's how we get to a statistic like the one that I described earlier about college graduates and things like that. I mean, I think it's, it's fairly clear that that's what is going on. So the question I, I want to ask uh, that's probably on your minds as well is, okay, we understand there's a problem, but what's the answer? What's the solution? Are we saying that boys should just be allowed to run roughshod and be it super aggressive and abusive and all that? No, listen. It's not a binary choice. It's not like, well, we can make them into deficient girls or they can be 
mass murderers, but there's nothing in between. That's not the choices. For Christians, especially when we talk about Christian character, developing Christian character in our boys and our men, the cross must come into focus here. The cross is the defining characteristic of Christian character. And so what does it mean to raise boys and men who know how to carry their cross? When Jesus carried his cross, what did that represent? Well, it represented the sins of the world, yes. But when Jesus carried his cross and stood and faced evil, faced the enemy without ever lashing out back as they lashed out at him, without ever saying a negative word to the people that criticized and condemned him, when Jesus carried his cross and forgave the ones who nailed him to his cross in real time, when Jesus, listen to this, when Jesus accepted the help of, a, of another man, Simon of Serene, who helped carry his cross. Jesus let him come and help him. All of these things are signs of what it means for us, especially us as boys and men, to carry our crosses today. And so the cross-shaped masculine life is what we're aiming for today. Now, um, of course, we have problems, but I think Jesus has a better answer. Now, I think in a lot of his teachings, Jesus is preparing us for this. Boys and girls, men and women, he's preparing us to do exactly what I just described. But we miss it because we have over-sentimentalized his teachings to such an extent that we don't even know what he was saying anymore. The greatest example of this, I'm going to lead you through this. You're not even going to believe it. Some of you, if you've heard me talk about this before, you're going to be like bored for the next five minutes. But listen, the rest of you, (laughs) your minds are about to be blown because mine was when I first understood this. All right? Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, very familiar passage where Jesus says some very familiar things, even the non-Christians. Check this out, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. Have you heard this before? Okay, hang in. Hang in there with me. We're going we're gonna to come back and uncover this. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them. The second mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. All right, so as far as Jesus' teachings go, these are about as sweet and saccharine as you'll find, right? Jesus was such a sweet, we, we picture Jesus here, I think, having like really beautiful hair and real, like just a skinny teacher looking guy and like a British accent, like, <laughs> go the second mile. You know, it's like very sweet. That is not what's happening here. And I don't even have to like bend the rules to explain this. Just read the passage for yourself and you'll find yourself asking questions like, who are they? And why do they keep taking people's clothes? And why do they keep dragging people to court? And why do they make you walk a mile? Like what is happening here? We've been so conditioned to sentimentalize a passage like this when we can't even see it anymore, the truth of what Jesus is doing. Um, Stanley Harawas, this great Christian professor, once said, um, sentimentality and not atheism is the greatest threat to Christianity in America. And what he meant is that when we 
overly sentimentalize Jesus and his teachings, we do him a great disservice. And this passage is a great example of what I'm talking about. So let's, let's just break this down. All right? You with me? Let's break this down. It's, a, it's sort of a triad of teachings that are very familiar. So you have the turn the other cheek, right? Shirt off your back, right? And then what was the third one? Walk a mile. Okay, thank you. So each one of these has a hidden meaning to us. It wasn't hidden to Jesus's audience. Think about who Jesus was talking to. Who was it? He was talking to everyday Jewish peasants, mostly men, some women, mostly men were in his audience, and they were all living under Roman oppression and occupation. Their land, their city, their homes, they were all under Roman occupation, Roman soldiers everywhere. And if you know anything about Roman history, the Roman soldiers were not known for their kindness. And so Jesus in every instance here is speaking directly to the pain of his people. So when Jesus says, when they slap you on the right cheek, he's talking to people who've been slapped around. They've been abused. They've been mistreated by the Romans, even by their Jewish overlords at the time. The the Jewish elites were mistreating them financially, physically, and otherwise. And so Jesus is talking to people who've been knocked around, and he says, when they slap you on the right cheek. Now, just think about this just for a second. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, how do they do it? So this is your right cheek, and they're in front of you, facing you. How do they slap you on the right cheek? Either the left hand, which was very unlikely because it's well-known in the ancient Jewish world especially. You didn't do anything that had to do with contact the other person with your left hand. It was not only are most people right-handed, that's your unclean hand. You use this hand for sanitation purposes. I'll take it no further than that. But this hand is what that was for. And so more than likely, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, they've done it like this. So Jesus was probably acting this out as he said it. If somebody slaps you on the right cheek, and we have a phrase for what kind of slap this is. I can't say it at church. Y'all know that. This is not meant to damage a person. This is meant to disrespect a person to dehumanize a person. So Jesus is saying, when these Roman soldiers come to you and they do this to you, you get up and you show them your left cheek as well. So he was intentional. He did the right cheek first. Show, you, show them your left cheek too. What's that to say? If you're gonna hit me, hit me like a man. Hit me like, close your fist and let me have it. Otherwise, don't even bother. So Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't say He doesn't say either of those two extremes, right? He doesn't say, go run away and and be a deficient girl. Like he doesn't say to the men who are following him, don't, you know, fight back with twice the power. Don't, you know, make your power known. Like he goes this third way. He says, stand. When they do this, you stand and show them this cheek. You stand and you face the evildoer. You don't back down, but you don't match evil with evil. You stand with integrity and you persevere, okay? This is not what you've heard. Whenever you hear somebody go, well, they just turn the other cheek. It's a doormat philosophy. Jesus was not about the doormat philosophy, okay? So the second teaching I think uh, is even better. I think it's even better than the first, all right? So we have this idea that you should give uh, the, the, whoever takes, 
for some reason, they're taking your clothes. Whoever takes your shirt, he says, give them the outer garment as well. And we have sentimentalized this to me. What, what do you mean when you go to a funeral and you say, well, she'd give anybody the shirt off her back? It means you're a nice person, right? That is just, I mean, it's fine. If you said that about your grandpa or whatever, I'm sorry. I don't, it's, it's a perfectly fine cultural statement. That's just not the statement Jesus was making. That's not the point. First of all, we have to ask ourselves, who is taking someone to court for their clothes? Because <laughs> he says clearly, they take you to court and take your clothes. Why? because Jesus was talking to people who'd been financially abused as well. These were people who very often would have faced the possibility, if not the reality, of being taken to debtor's court to work out their debt, a repayment plan, which usually involved uh, you know, a repossession of all that they owned. The shirt off your back was a symbol of that. And then maybe some time in debtor's prison or working off your debt for your creditor. Okay, that's a debt slave. That's what a slave was in New Testament days. All right, a little different than what we think about today. And so Jesus is saying, when you're standing in court and they sue you and you have nothing left, they take your shirt. He's talking about the, the, one of the two garments that people wore back then. The outer garment was like a robe, like a coat. The inner garment was like long underwear, basically. And that's what he's saying. When they take your inner garment, they take your, your long underwear shirt off, give them the outer garment too. And this is where everyone in Jesus's audience would have been rolling with laughter, just really lost in laughter, because then you're left with an image of being absolutely as naked as the day you were born in a proper Roman court, which is a hilarious image, no matter how you look at it, especially from the first century Jewish perspective, though, because in their worldview, to be naked was to shame anyone else in your presence. We think about it differently. If you're naked, you're the one who's ashamed, right? Like, no, no, no. And some of y'all are like, not me. Okay, whatever. But like most of us, like, anyway, the, the idea in the Bible times was you shame the other people who saw you naked. And so Jesus is saying, stand up to evil and shame the shameful. All right? That's what it meant to give them the coat after they took your shirt. Third, go the extra mile. This is another weird one. Who makes you walk a mile? Gym teacher? Like, what's he talking about? I don't know, but... The, the reality is, and this is documented outside of the Bible, you had the scholars had to go outside the Bible to find this information, but Roman soldiers, when they overtook a province, could force non-Roman citizens to carry their supplies for a, a mile, about a mile, but no more. And if they forced anyone to, in an abusive way, carry their stuff for more than a mile, then they could be accused, and the centurion over them could hold them accountable, punish them with lashings, or more frequently, they would punish them by giving them nothing to eat but barley for a month. <laughs> that was the most common punishment for this particular um, uh, offense. And so Jesus says, whenever they, and here everybody in his audience knew who they were. They were the Roman soldiers who made you walk a mile with their stuff. Whenever they do that, Jesus said, don't stop. <laughs> this, this is hilarious. He said, don't stop, just keep going. Go the second mile with this guy's stuff. Now, if you can picture this scene of a Roman soldier all clad up in his gear, right, in his, his breastplate and all the, that little feathery thing, just like chasing a little Jewish peasant down the road, please, please just give it back. You know, it's like immediately the power dynamic shifts. Immediately, the one who had no power now holds all the cards because the Roman soldier's thinking, is this guy insulting me? Is he calling, is he saying I'm not strong enough to carry my own stuff? Or is he going to tell the centurion that I forced him to carry my stuff farther than I did because then I could get in trouble and barley for a month and neck and all this. Like what's happening here? Immediately the power dynamic shifts and that's the point Jesus is making. 
It's not be soft, be sentimental, be sweet, be a doormat, none of that. But it's also not fight back until you know you give as good as you get and all this stuff. It's not that either. It's not, it's not toxic in that way. It's a third way, a better way of facing your evil, standing with strength, accepting help when you need it, but more than anything else, standing and persevering in the face of oppression, evil, etc. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it looks like to have a cross-shaped masculinity, a cross-shaped character. That's who men are supposed to be, guys. That's who we're supposed to be. Unfortunately, we as a church haven't always done the best job. Churches have followed culture in how we deal with masculinity. We don't want to be seen as brutes or, you know, these kind of backwater throwbacks that people accuse us of being. And so we try to be refined and sophisticated. And we, we treat men and boys kind of like deficient women and girls. And I, I, mean, I don't mean that in an insulting way. I just... What is church in 99% of the cases? Church, what does it require of men? Come and sit, be good little boys. Don't make too much noise. When you get up and go to the bathroom, the pastor sees you. And you might not get your gold star for today. That's all I'm saying. And we're gonna have a snack time after this. And if you want one, you better behave. And it's like uh, one study was done recently where they, they studied the programming and the messaging of local churches across America and just to, just to try and figure out who the real target audience of churches were. And what they came away with was like a 68-year-old um, widow, a woman. Um, and, and that's what most of our messaging is, is, is for. And, and I think it's, it's self-evident. The church, Christianity was born in fire and blood. We were born as a revolution against oppression and spiritual and demonic forces in this world. And, and men gravitated to that cause. But now Christianity in the West has largely devolved into, you know, committees and casseroles. And we go, why aren't men coming to church anymore? It's patently clear. Patently clear. We're not giving them any compelling reason to chase after Jesus as the men that God created them to be. And men are facing this question, how do we reconcile the way God made us with the way the world wants us? You know, and, and a lot of times men do go one of two ways. It's like, just suppress it, suppress it, suppress it, become more effeminate and people will accept me or, or you know, just go crazy and violent, play violent video games or do violent things. As if those are our options, Jesus gives us a third way. And it calls us out to face evil in all of its forms with courage, never cowering to face evil, to stare down oppression, to say, hit me like a man, I can take it. To do that in the way of Jesus as a father to the fatherless, a defender of the defenseless. So I just want to wrap, I know I'm a little bit long today, but I just want to wrap on this uh, idea uh, about fathers as a father. And I'm also talking to mothers here. Anyone raising little boys or young men, even if you have adult sons, you're going to face pressure to raise your boys to be what the world says they should be. And that means two different things. On the one hand, as I said earlier, media, academia, all this stuff will tell you that your boys should be docile, passive, etc. And on the other hand, you'll face other kinds of temptations 
in other parts of our society and in the church to raise boys who fit the mold of some tragic form of masculinity that can basically be boiled down to three goals. Our boys are supposed to either, you know, be, be strong and athletic. They're supposed to be uh, uh, aggressive sexually. And, uh, and they're supposed to be successful. So uh, the way this looks is uh, people find out you have a son, and the first question they ask is, oh, what sports does he play? How's he doing in baseball this year? Or maybe that's the first thing you talk about, even unprompted. You know, who's he dating? Who's he taking to prom? Woo, she's cute, you know, that kind of thing. Or, um, you know, what, where do you get an internship this summer? Where's he, gonna be, where's he gonna be spending his summer? Oh, you must be proud. And if I could just, without offending you, or I'm not trying to be crass, when it comes to sports and sex and success, the way this world defines it anyway, Who cares? Parents, who cares how many triples your son hits this summer? Who cares? If he's at every practice, who cares? You know, who he's dating or if he's dating, who cares? Look, this is really going to get you. Cover your kids' ears if you don't want to hear this. But who cares where they get into school? Y'all? It doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't matter where they get accepted into school. There's only one place they need to get accepted into, really, and it has nothing to do with extracurricular activity. You know, kind of does, but it's another sermon. So the, the, the only thing that matters isn't raising an athlete. You're not raising LeBron James. I mean, have you looked at yourself? Like, anyway, sorry, me too, me too, me too. You know, we already have LeBron James. We don't need more LeBron Jameses. We don't need more Don Juans, you know? We don't need more Bill Gateses or Elon Musks. You know, what we need more of is young boys that are raised to be warriors in God's kingdom who contend for the gospel in ways that mirror Christ. You're not raising a third baseman. You're raising a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that is your first and most important job when raising little boys and little girls. Look, I'm talking specifically about masculinity today, but when we're parents of any kind, our job, and when we're a church of any kind, our job is to raise a generation of disciples of Jesus Christ who, like Jesus, willingly, for the joy set before us, take up our crosses, scorning its shame for the sake of the world and the message of the gospel. That's who we're called to be, more like Jesus. Would y'all pray with me? Father, we thank you for this uh, reminder today. We thank you for all the ways you're calling us. Um, We do confess that we miss the mark in terms of uh, how we understand uh, masculinity, little boys and uh, young men, and how we're raising this generation of boys who see themselves and we don't always just know what the answers are. We confess that uh, we need your help. Father, we know that you're calling us out to be something different, set apart from the world around us. I pray that you would give us courage to raise a generation of 
young people who willingly and um, freely and joyfully take up their crosses and build their character by your grace on your cross. Father, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for the freedom we found in you. And now we pray for the ability to proclaim your message to the world with integrity and perseverance. Thank you, Jesus, for all your mercy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.